Hello again. Today we are going to continue readings from the book What is Man? Adam, Alien or Ape? Now we have already worked through chapter one of this book and we're now going to begin chapter two. I did in fact read the first half of chapter two in a previous format, but I've decided to repeat it in the new format and then continue with the second half of chapter two and publish the two episodes at the same time. Uh, so here we go with our second reading. There'll be a short pause while I turn it up. Chapter 2 is entitled The Cheshire Cat Cosmos. Well, that's the joke title, and the subtitle is this. Can a universe create itself from nothing? And we begin with a quotation from the late Stephen Hawking book, uh, The Grand Design. And they say, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. Well, of course, Hawking and Mladenov are atheists, and so they wouldn't believe in creation by God. Uh, but now we continue with the chapter. Before we proceed to consider what is man, the title of the book, it will be helpful to ask a more down-to-earth question. Where is man? <clears throat> For if the universe or cosmos is a meaningless accident of nature, containing billions of life-supporting planets, then everything in it, including man, is also likely to be accidental. If, on the other hand, the cosmos was created by God, as the Bible claims, then man is also likely to be special or even unique, brought into existence for a purpose. Our view of cosmic origins will therefore inevitably affect the way we see human origins and the significance of man. So how did the universe come to exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? It is pleasing to report that atheists like the late cosmologist Stephen Hawking cited above and Lawrence Krauss in his book A Universe from Nothing have come round to the idea that the universe did after all arise ex nihilo, 
out of nothing. Thus they endorse a view proposed by the Bible over 3,000 years ago, while denying that God had anything to do with it. In this chapter we're going to see how they reached that opinion, but we shall see more. We shall also pursue their atheistic thinking to its logical end point, namely the necessity of God. So let's retrace their collective steps as they stumble their way to this surprising conclusion. In order to do so, uh, we need to review how atheistic thinking has evolved over the last hundred years or so. Subheading, Who Made God? Who Made God is, of course, the title of the prequel to this book, but here we'll focus on the reason why this is the atheist's favourite ontological question. In full, the question reads, If God made everything, who made God? And is asked with an interesting purpose. To help explain this, I need to retell the story of the Tower of Turtles, or tortoises. A, a turtle is an aquatic tortoise. Anyone who has read Who Made God or Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, will be familiar with the story. But I need to repeat it here for newcomers. The apocryphal story relates how a little old lady challenged the speaker following a public lecture on astronomy and the solar system. Your lecture is all wrong, she declared. The earth is not suspended in space, but is supported on the back of a giant turtle. So what is the turtle standing on? asked the lecturer with a superior smile. On the back of another turtle, she replied. And what is that turtle standing on? pressed the lecturer. It was the lady's turn to be scornful. It's turtles all the way down she declared triumphantly. Whether true or not, the story is surely a libel on little old ladies, uh, but it does serve to introduce us to the fallacy of infinite regress or regression. <clears throat> an infinite regress consists of an unending series of explanations in which each explanation needs in turn to be explained. Like the infinite tower of turtles, such explanations have zero explanatory power because they never make contact with the ground level of reality. It is this kind of reasoning that lies at the heart of the who made God question. Atheist standard bearer Richard Dawkins seems to think it is a valid question. He writes, a God capable of continuously monitoring and controlling the status of every particle in the universe cannot be simple. His existence is going to need a mammoth explanation in its own right. Close quote. Thus he argues that if God exists, he is so complex that he must have evolved from or been created by some simpler 
pre-existing entity. <clears throat> and anyone foolish enough to concede his point is then obliged to explain where the pre-theistic entity came from, so launching irretrievably down the slippery slope of an infinite regress. <clears throat> but of course an intelligent atheist knows exactly how a theist will answer his question. No one made God because God is the uncreated ground of all existence. So why do atheists persist with it? They have a good reason for doing so. What they really want to establish is that by ascribing cosmic creation to God, theists have already committed themselves to an infinite regress without realizing it. Never mind the second turtle, God is the first turtle. Let's spell it out. We all agree that the universe exists, but, say the atheists, those who claim it was created by God are replacing a real, visible and tangible cosmos by an invisible, immaterial and implausible spirit as the fundamental existential reality. And that, they maintain, makes no more sense than saying that the Earth hasn't dropped out of the Milky Way because it is supported by a turtle. The ball is surely in the theist's court. Well, yes, but it is returnable. The argument so far leaves atheists with a dilemma of their own, namely an inexplicable universe. Firstly, any attempt to explain the origin of the universe in physical terms risks the danger of an infinite regress of material causes. Secondly, if the physical cosmos is itself the ultimate reality, then there is no point in trying to explain its existence. It must be accepted as an inexplicable brute fact. Keith Parsons, professor of philosophy at the University of Houston, put the matter clearly in a discussion with Ed Faser, associate professor of philosophy at Pasadena City College, California. I think you and I agree that explanatory hierarchies will come to an end with an uncaused cause something that has no causal antecedents and is the original, fundamental or primordial reality that possesses a set of distinctive properties which constitute the ultimate terms of every explanatory regress. I see no reason why that ultimate reality cannot be the original, fundamental or primordial and brutally factual physical reality. Where is the incoherence? A brute fact would be a state of affairs that just is, with no cause or explanation of its existence or nature. 
most older atheists like the British philosopher Bertrand Russell uh, also embraced this worldview. To them the cosmos was the only accessible reality and must be taken as given. It would be delusional to seek to explain how it came to be. Uh, to quote the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Bertrand Russell denies that the universe needs an explanation. It just is. Russell, following Hume, contends that since we derive the concept of cause from our observation of particular things, we cannot ask about the cause of something like the universe, a cause that we cannot experience. The universe is just there. And that's all. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche held a quirky version of the brute fact universe, in which the cosmos recurs endlessly over infinite time and space, so that all configurations that have previously existed on this earth must yet meet again. This concept included a kind of personal reincarnation. Uh, he goes on, uh, quotation, and thus it will happen one day that a man will be born again just like me, only that it is hoped that the head of this man may contain a little less foolishness, close quote. Although Nietzsche's theory strikes us as bizarre today, it lives on in those modern cosmological models in which the universe cycles endlessly between phases of expansion and contraction, and also in certain far-out multiverse hypotheses in which copies of ourselves exist in a myriad of parallel universes. Uh, we'll meet the multiverse later. I should add that for various technical reasons, cyclic universe theories are currently out of fashion. Until scientists began to appreciate the implications of Einstein's general theory of relativity, published in 1915, the scientific consensus even among theists was that the universe was the eternal backcloth to our existence, an unchanging stage on which the drama of life and history was played out. In fact, Einstein himself was troubled that his equations did not at first describe a static universe, but only one that was either expanding or contracting. Believing that the fault lay in his theory, he therefore inserted a fudge factor, which he called the cosmological constant, and which had the effect of allowing a static universe to exist. When 20 years later the cosmos was found to be expanding after all, he described the fudge as his, quote, biggest blunder, close quotes. Read the full story in chapter 7 of Who Made God? <clears throat> Subheading, Whatever Happened to the Brute Fact Universe? As we saw in the previous section, some philosophers still cling to the brute fact universe. 
but the great majority of scientists have moved on. There are two reasons for the near demise of this attempt to circumvent the need to explain the origin of the cosmos. Firstly, it never did sit well with the incurable curiosity of the human mind. <coughs> I tell scientists not to bother their heads about origins, and they will redouble their efforts to find out where everything came from. A child's first sortie into philosophy is, Mummy, where did I come from? The child is not seeking a lesson in reproductive biology. Recognising for the first time that it has a self, which is distinct from the selves of its parents and siblings, it wants to know how that self came to exist. The curiosity only grows as we develop from childhood to maturity and extends to every aspect of the world around us. Furthermore, it is this curiosity that drives the scientific enterprise. Why, for example, do we spend billions of dollars building atom-smashing machines like the Large Hadron Collider at Geneva, or radio telescopes seeking to tune into alien versions of family favourites? Curiosity may be fatal to felines. Curiosity killed the cat, but it is the lifeblood of pure science. To be told that because the universe is the ultimate reality, there is no point in asking where it came from, simply does not satisfy our thirst for knowledge. But there is a second and even greater problem for the brute fact universe. Namely, that the overwhelming consensus among cosmologists today requires the cosmos to have begun. That once again, I must refer the reader to my book, Who Made God, for the full story about the discovery that the universe is expanding leads most experts to believe that it had its origin in a hot big bang, which itself emerged from an initial singularity, a theoretical condition where physical quantities like density and temperature are infinite and the laws of nature no longer apply. Although there is no shortage of speculations about how the singularity might be avoided, the evidence in favour of a singularity origin of the cosmos is strong. One example is the mathematical proof by three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin none of whom has any religious axe to grind. In the Tufts University newspaper, Tufts Now, uh, Jacqueline Mitchell writes, <coughs> by, now, <there's coughs> by now there's scientific consensus that our universe exploded into existence almost 14 billion years ago in an event known as the Big Bang. But that theory raises more questions about the universe's origin than it answers. Because the most basic one, what happened before the Big Bang, uh, is one of those questions. Some cosmologists have argued that a universe could have no beginning, 
that simply always was. In 2003, Tufts cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin and his colleagues Arvind Board and Alan Guth proved a mathematical theorem showing that under very general assumptions, the universe must, in fact, have had a beginning. Uh, the article continues to explain that Vilenkin and his student Audrey Mithani have since examined three potential loopholes in the 2003 theorem, strengthening the original premise that the universe did, in fact, begin. Uh, Vilenkin does not ignore the claim that as a singularity is approached with decreasing size, quantum physics may take over making it doubtful that a singularity would ever actually occur, and replacing it by a tiny quantum egg. But he makes it clear that if this happened, some laws of nature would still need to operate, a point I shall develop shortly. He also argues that any such quantum egg would be unstable and unlikely to have existed eternally in the past. To summarise, Vilenkin himself is clear enough about the implications of his work. Quotes, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. The upshot of all this, anything that begins to exist must have a cause. And if the universe had a beginning, it must also have a cause. Uh, this is fairly self-evident, but is formalized in what is called the Kalam cosmological argument. It is such reasoning that has led atheists like Stephen Hawking and Lawrence Krauss to propose in recent books that the universe created itself, leaving God redundant. So let's consider their claims. 